0: Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect,
1: and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. The thing that we really focus on is saying, well, what else do you need to do to be sort of truly sustainable? So, um, and sort of people's mental health and the, and, the, and how sustainable the actual sort of society or neighbourhood is that you're building within these buildings is one thing that we're deeply focused on.
0: Welcome back to the pod and it is great to have you with us as always. Well, those are the wise words of Chris Daff, who is the Managing Director of Make Ventures and Assemble. This is a really interesting chat with Chris who's gone all the way through from being an engineer and building bridges, as he calls it, to... Um, to to being an investment property investment and then to launching uh, a couple of businesses which are all doing incredibly well, um, his focus at the moment is definitely on that middling bracket of lower to middle uh, to to middle um, income earners who are kind of stuck between that rock and a hard place, of wanting to uh, rent or to buy, but maybe not quite having a solution. And Chris has really um, done an amazing job at being a real innovator and taking a model from overseas, uh, customising it for the Melbourne market and really offering a great rent-to-buy solution in sustainable communities in Melbourne. So it was great chatting with him. I think um, there's great alignment here with what Chris is trying to do in building our healthy, resilient and sustainable communities and our listeners. So I hope you enjoy the pod. As always, I want to send a special thank you and shout out to our our Patreon supporters, Misha D and wife, Joel F, Stuart M and McCartan. Your ongoing support uh, each month has been tremendous for Humans of Purpose and helps us grow and perform each and every week. I'm excited that we'll soon be launching our premium uh, full version podcast for our Patreon subscribers. So if you are keen to get an additional 15 minutes of the full version of the podcast featuring some of my favorite uh, well-worked on questions to our wide array of guests, then I suggest you become a Patreon and uh, click the link in the show notes. Chris, so good to have you here, mate. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, I. Right. Mate, we're enjoying a nice little single malt, and I think that's the perfect time to hear a bit about your journey into the space (laughs) and uh, your history and how you've made it uh, thus far to assemble and make.
1: All right. Well, thanks for the drink to start with. Pleasure. Um, Yeah, so it's been an interesting journey. So personally, professionally... I am a civil engineer, structural engineering graduate, Melbourne Uni, so I did engineering and geology, so I don't get a lot of use out of either degree so much anymore, but <laughs> learn a lot of sort of practical problem-solving skills um, going through that fine institution, which was terrific, um, and then moved out of uni, so worked pretty hard my last couple of years of uni and did two days a week at a civil engineering consultant and moved out of that and then started designing bridges for them. As, soon as I'd graduated, and I was pretty lucky at the time actually to pick up a graduate job. So, working through those last couple of years of uni turned into a sort of good strategy because it gave me a, an obvious pathway to a job. And some of my peers found it a, a little bit more difficult. What year was that? Was it sort of uh, early 2000s? Ah, that was a lot. Yeah, long time. so I finished uh, yeah finished um, high school in 1996, was yep. my BCA year. So um, and then, yeah, moved out and started designing bridges, worked on the Westgate Bridge, sort of strengthening and a few other sort of interesting jobs for a while. Then got into project management with that, that group. Um, and then sort of as careers progress, you know, it's sort of a bit of choose your own adventure to a certain extent. But there's also a, a sort of, you know, particularly in your younger years, these things can be a little bit ad hoc. And, um, I saw a job pop up in, in Docklands working for the Docklands Authority, which I thought was pretty interesting. And, you know, I thought that seemed like a pretty cool place to work. And it was, I was enjoying the project management side of things less so than the the sort of hardcore design side. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought that might be a good opportunity for me to, um, you know, take a job in a fairly progressive, large scale new urban renewal precinct. Um, So I took up that job, and the good thing about that job was as a relatively young person, I got exposure to some really powerful businesses. So I was working with Lendlease and Mab and Mervac and, you know, the sort of big end of town in in real estate development. Um, and it was a pretty exciting place. You know, Docklands has had its challenges, and, you know, and that it sort of seems to be getting better and better all the time. But, you know, at the time, you know, I think there was 24 cranes up around oh, Docklands, yeah. and there was plenty of activity and, you know, everyone sort of knew the project. So yeah. that was good as well. You know, with your peers, you know, they knew that you're working on docklands and people knew what that was. Mm. So which was good. Um, and I formed some really strong relationships with a bunch of different developers there. And, you know, the good thing was, as I said, as a young person, you got actually exposure to, you know, a lot of the sort of senior people in these bigger businesses. Um, and got along with a few of those people, individuals in particular, really well. Um, one of, whom was Ashley Williams from – he was working for MAB at the time, developing New Key. Um, you know, and we sort of struck up a bit of a bond, which was terrific, and, and sort of resolved, you know, at some point in the future when the time was right, you know, it'd be good to sort of do some more business together.
0: Did you sort of uh, feel from that the outset that there was a real click there? You kind of – Yeah, it was well.
1: good. You know, I was sort of – you know, I had a lot of respect for Ashley and the way he went about um, – his business with Mab and the way he engaged with us, um, you know, as a sort of counterparty, you know, in his development agreement. Um, you know, and I think he obviously, you know, sort of like the cut of my jib to a certain extent. <laughs> and I you know, thought I was sort was of, a mutual you know, for a bit of a you know, for a bit of a young lippy upstart working on the other <laughs> side of the table. That's probably you know, not too bad. So we um anyway, so one thing led to another and, you know, all said and done. Um ended up going into the evolved development business with Ash Williams and, and Ron Walker and spent seven years in that business and became a director and shareholder and we did some really terrific projects together so across so you, built um, form so, so, you, so
0: you're an entrepreneur
1: from fairly early on um, I was I'm pretty good with risk so whereas um, other people you know and it's, it's you know it is what it is you know just people sort of minds working different ways people sort of crave stability and certainty of working in big business and and, and sort of big corporates. The, you know, opportunity to sort of carve, you know, more of an individual path was something that had always appealed to me. Um, You know, and I was quite happy to... Sort of say to myself, Well, you know, if it doesn't work, you know, you're in your sort of late 20s, no big deal, go back and get a job for Stockland or someone else, yep. you know, it'll be fine. And now so, that
0: entrepreneurship has become like the thing to do, that's it, yeah. just looks even better. Well, out. that's good, <laughs>
1: yeah, thanks. There, uh, so I was some, you know, there were some peers that didn't understand it, um, uh, so that you know, and sort of thought perhaps you know, I was sort of doing pretty well as it was, so you know, why change? Yeah, but. Why would um, you
0: expose yourself to unnecessary yeah, risk? I think that's the that's that, the constant entrepreneurs dilemma.
1: Yeah, yeah. So and um, you know, and there was times that I I sort of doubted the choice as well. So going into evolve was good because it wasn't sort of what you're going out sort of sole practitioner startup sort of space, and you know, and really sort of doing it by yourself, having. Um, Two more experienced, um, partners in the business in Ashley and, and Ron, mm. um, was terrific, you know, and they were very, um, you know, sort of good sanding board for ideas. And we had good alignment on what we thought the sort of strategy was to grow that platform and that business. And that turned into a business. We we're at our peak. I think 2013 was our biggest year and we completed about 600 apartments in that year. Oh, and wow. we had a large land subdivision business and, and, um, you know, it, it was, it was a good, it was a good thing. And then. Um it got to a point with uh, that business where I was interested in pursuing some different sort of forms of development and by that I mean sort of more large-scale and renewal projects and you um, know I had some people that were sort of interested in in working with me in, in building a new platform so I went away and established Make Ventures um, and sort of Lost, didn't lose my way, but sort of spent that six or 12 months sort of thinking, you know, what, what have I sort of done here? I had a good thing going at Evolve, and, you know, and Ash and Ron were really good to work with. And, you know, it's sort of, you know, it's you're not the sort of we ever sort of had a safety blanket there, but, you know, it's just always good to have partners. So, absolutely. Um, so, and I had um, Matt Ablethorpe, uh He was in the business and um, partner in the business. So he came out of ISPT. So, um, we sort of got going and started doing a couple of projects, and took some large positions on some industrial land in the in Melbourne southeast, which was a deliberate strategy to say, well, if we're a small private development business, um, so we had good capital support, so we had the ability to sort of complete decent transactions. Um, you know, what's our space in the market? So if we've got a lot of offshore development groups, other domestic, large corporate development groups that are using metrics to sort of evaluate the acquisition of land and sites and things that didn't make sense to us as a business or as individuals at the time, you know, what's our space to play in? So, mm. you know, what's this business going to be? Um, and I reflected personally on saying, so, well, what are my core skills? So what am I actually good at influencing that other people are? maybe find more challenging or just aren't willing to sort of take on um, and highly politicised planning processes like rezoning processes mm. and things that have got sort of high demands on community engagement and stakeholder engagement was something that I was very interested in and I'd formed very strong relationships with government over a long period of time. So... Took a view that buying large scale industrial property that obviously wasn't going to be industrial property anymore. So we bought, for example, in 2015 at an 11 acre site in Bentley mm. that was manufacturing brakes. Okay, so they sold it to us and leased back and kept manufacturing brakes, but clearly automotive manufacturing in Bentley in Melbourne, mm. you know, and it was a sort of declining industry was, was going to be on the way out, yep. and sites that were well-located and well-located to existing infrastructure, so you're not building from scratch like yep. government needs to do in greenfields, um, would be called upon to do more heavy lifting for a whole bunch of stuff. So, you know, dwelling supply, educa- supply of education, supply of jobs, so... Um, and formed a view that we don't need to have a development business that's big overnight, so we don't need to sort of go through the sort of instant sort of megalomania phase of needing a whole <laughs> bunch of cranes up with the sort yeah. of names written all over them and, and everything else, which is which is fine. And so, well, let's play <laughs> a long game here. And so, over time, we can have a big development company. Um, and... Um, over time, we can have a big development company, and we don't need to sort of have that tomorrow, and we can use some skills that we've got in the in the camp already to create value. So um, so that was, that was all really interesting and good, and all of a sudden, we had a big pipeline of projects. We had about 1,800 apartments across multiple sites in Melbourne, and a lot of those had lengthy planning processes in front of them. Mm. And we we're doing a little project actually in South Yarra, fourteen townhouses that were, you know, typical South Yarra townhouses, one and three quarter million dollars each, and we we're selling them off the plan and selling to people overseas and sort of selling to anyone who would actually sign a contract and pay a deposit. So you know, sort of the extent of the process in in some days, and that off the plan process is a is a bit of a soulless one. So you've got you no, know, it's very strange business real estate development where. You know, and a lot of developers purport to have much deeper relationships with their residents, and some do, but most don't, Mm. okay? So most developers wouldn't ever meet their customers, so a real estate agent would sit in between a developer and and its customers, and the real estate agent would sort of, you know, find people willing to sign contracts and pay deposits. And it's just a commission
0: kind of... uh, Yeah,
1: and then it just turns into a sort of process, and you go off and build a building, and, you know, and you do that for the best value possible, um, and you sort of maximise margin, and the people turn up when the building's finished, and go to settlement with your solicitors, and give them a couple of checks, and get the keys to an apartment, and Sounds that's very, it. you're uh, on to the next project. Ice so. cold and transactional. Yeah, it is. You know, and there's, it's 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 not as bad as that. That's a sort of pretty brutal summary <laughs> of it. But you know, at its at its purest, you know, that's the process, and, and that's been a very successful process for the delivery of housing in this country. Mm. Um, but it's got its challenges as well. And you're saying, well. And I started to check out of that process in this small, small project. And, you know, we'd sort of done a few sales and the project was going to get underway. And I sort of thought, well, what's this mean for the business? So all of a sudden we've gone and acquired all these bigger sites. Mm. We've done our little project. I sort of checked out of the process and sort of lost interest in that as a model. And now we've got, you know, over 1500 department pipeline across Melbourne. And if, the only way that supply ever gets delivered and those projects get completed is via this off-the-plan sales process. Yep. What does that mean for my business? What have I got myself into here? I've got this huge pipeline and I'm mm. not interested in the way that we should deliver that pipeline. Yeah. So I thought, well, that can't be the only way. So um, I started spending a bit more time overseas. I did a couple of trips to the United States and Europe just investigating alternative housing models and trying to understand uh, a bit more of the sort of housing landscape in saying, well, what are the other ways in which housing gets delivered internationally? Mm-hmm. So in Australia, you know, for the last 30 years in particular, it's been basically dwellings that are pre-sold off the plant, built by a developer and then bought by mum and dad investors or mm-hmm. some owner-occupiers. And that delivers about 95% of new dwelling supply in this country. And that's been a pretty effective mechanism. So... Um, it's got its issues, but generally it would say it's done a pretty good job in keeping up with the housing needs that Australia's had so so internationally, how else does housing get delivered so you the US was probably the most relevant market and the market that had the biggest scale in saying there's institutionally owned whole residential buildings so you know on large schemes two hundred three hundred five hundred a thousand apartments in individual schemes where a pension fund would own the entire asset um, and treat that. You know, like, you know, basically like a thousand investment properties in one go. Mm. And there's some, you know, commercially that was interesting. Uh, I knew we had the fourth biggest pension fund market in the world by dollars. So, um, so, so we've got this huge pool of, um, you know, Australians, you know, superannuation funds there for investment. And we've got, um, superannuation funds that are looking to deploy that capital domestically, but are a bit starved of opportunity. So look to international markets to place that capital. And we say, well, so what's the opportunity there? So clearly, there's a sort of money available domestically. There's this asset class that exists internationally that's a really big thing. So, um, you know, and it's from the mid-90s through until this point. So over the last sort of 20 years in the United States, you know, the market's ballooned. So Mm. it's gone from 3% of an institution's real estate portfolio to about 26% today. So... Um, so that was really interesting. So you could see how if you could get the investment mechanism right for Australia's superannuation funds, um, then you had the opportunity to sort of deliver housing on mass. And then I sort of said, well, what can you actually solve for with a housing model like that? So how can you you know how can you do housing that delivers more for communities and for australians than, than just housing? so, I started to look more in the lower middle income space in North America and Europe in particular, Mm. some of the housing co-op models in, say, Switzerland, Netherlands, um, and saw what the pension funds, the big investors were able to solve for in those locations. So where we've got, say, in Melbourne, for example, government-funded social housing, you know, sort of commission housing, you know, the – It's often called, um, and then we've sort of got market housing and there's sort of not much in the middle. So, so we sort of talk, um, about having models that work for the missing middle. So this is low, yeah, low and middle income Hmm. households. So, um, low and middle income households would be sort of summarized as people that are well employed in good stable jobs. They just don't earn high incomes.
0: No, they can't quite afford to get their way into the
1: housing market. so, you know, and and, and what quite often happens with those households on those low and middle incomes is they get displaced to areas that they can least afford to be housed. Mm. So they might have to move to the far outer suburbs of Melbourne. That means Mm. they've got to run two cars. You know, that means they don't get to spend as much time with their family as they'd like to. So So it's the
0: quality of life trade-off that comes with the
1: distance. That's right, you know, and that's that's across the board, you know, and that goes, you know, Mm. that sort of nurse, key service workers, janitorial staff that run the hospitals. So there's all those sort of people that, um, you know, really make day-to-day life possible um, and then um, don't really feel like they're getting a fair go in housing. So they don't feel like there's a housing market, you know, in Australia that's designed for them. Mm. You know, they feel like, particularly in the ownership piece, you know, they feel that like that's designed designed for people that are more wealthy or, um, people that own you know large portfolios of investment properties and just to continue to accrue more. So when you looked at the the
0: models in the Netherlands and yeah. um, Europe and some of the sort of uh, cooperative or community housing models, did you did you think to yourself, this is amazing, but would it work here? Or were there parts that you liked? Yeah,
1: yeah. So I think the psychology of some of those European cities and, and countries is is definitely different to Australia. Mm. So, but there were you know, things that were always relevant. So community is always relevant. So, And I think, you know, it's not for everyone. So not everyone sort of wants to sort of do this sort of, you know, go and tend to the communal veggie patch on a Saturday morning with their, (laughs) you know, with their favourite neighbours. But some people do and, you know, and I think, you know, the sort of desire is there. Some people just like to know that they've got neighbours, you know, that they might be able to sort of go and ask to to help them with something or neighbours that they care about or neighbours that they know are going to be there sort of long-term with them in a building. So, um, And you can't force community. So community sort of needs to be opt-in. So we put a big focus on... um, on providing infrastructure and opportunity for community to form mm-hmm. but not sort of trying to make it sort of compulsory for well, people to yeah. turn up to a movie night or the, that's that that's very sort of interesting
0: thing. that yeah. that's an interesting premise so what is the fine balance then between maybe is it environmental is it sort of creating the right environmental or community assets and then the right kind of mm. push yeah. and then you let it pull the
1: rest that's right yeah so there's um I should I'll take a step back and just finish my journey. So sure in evolve, so we got that and we'd had a terrific time there, and it was it was a great business, so moved in setup up make. and then we'd invest I'd investigated these models and we'd come up with some really interesting investment structures and we'd been working with KPMG and our lawyers ABL and Free Hills, and we'd got all this sort of really jazzy stuff that was really good for the numbers, and you know we knew that we were generating returns that would be sufficient to attract um wholesale capital so superannuation fund capital to our model and our organization and then you I sort of took a step back and thought well that's good but that's pretty easily replicable actually so you know they're just tax structures and they're just sort of ways mm-hmm. of doing things that any other developer sort of in town can pick up and use and you know and you know the reality is the sort of What's what's your defensive business strategy? And I sort of took some more lessons from overseas, and saying, well, what's actually the really defensive business strategy in wholly institutional, wholly institutionally owned housing? Uh, and it's to be the best manager of choice. So it's to make sure your residents have the best experience living in one of your buildings across the board. So that means good quality, occupant-focused, occupant-designed product. Mm. So really good quality housing. Uh, and then a really good management experience so that you're doing a really good job engaging the community, forming community and giving people a really good sort of easy and sort of high quality of life in one of our our buildings. So where that got us to is just say, so, well, if you come from a background of being pretty much a pure capitalist in the sort of development enterprise that you've undertaken and projects that you've done. And then all of a sudden, notwithstanding the fact that I had a sort of deep interest in it and really cared about the concept of the formation of, and curation of proper communities, mm-hmm. long-term communities, and being partners with those communities um, – You need to, um, for us to sort of go through a PR and branding exercise would have been a really complex thing. Mm So I started looking around and say, well, who's sort of doing this well? Sort of, who's got their finger on the pulse on how do you form community in the inner city context? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. What does it look like? What sort of spaces do you need in buildings? So, um, and, you know, what's the sort of, you know, what's the sort of Melbourne centric style, you know, approach to it rather than just sort of trying to transplant something out of LA or yeah, yeah. New York or Amsterdam or whatever sort of who's sort of got their finger on the pulse on what community means for Melbourne in the inner city context. So something bespoke to Melbourne and then sort of more broadly Australia. Um, we started talking to the guys from Assemble. So, um, and they had a, so they've also got an architecture business um, called Fieldwork. Um, so Ben and Kino from Assemble had a really interesting approach and sort of research thesis they'd done around community and what they thought that mean, meant and what they thought that meant in a built environment as well. So, and they were doing a really interesting project over in Rosneath Street, Clifton Hill, where they were executing some of these ideas that they'd had. Um, and they'd found a really, um, interesting pathway to engage with their Customers, so with their future residents, and to engage them in the design of the building, and sort of take them on a journey, and um, it'd been very successful. Um, that was a sold-off-the-plan building, but the style of engagement and interaction they'd had with their residents was really engaged mm. and really personal. Mm. Um, Which is was, it's
0: such a new role for the the um, developer to play, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it is. So um, it exists, but um, but you know, only in very rare, rare instances. So, um, and we got talking, was talking to them about being an advisor to, to, the, to our group and, you know, we're going to set up a new brand and it was going to be, you know, home by make or, you know, whatever it was going to be called, you know, the aid agency would have come up with something more <laughs> more jazzy than that. I'm not on that committee, so. <laughs> they, um, Leave it to the pros. Yeah, they don't let the civil engineers dabble in that. <laughs> Just stick to the bridges, all right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so and luckily i guess for us and you know and for them as well they're doing a bit of a review of assemble and wanted to sort of focus more on the architecture business so we're able to sort of come to an arrangement where um we'd be able to um basically partner with the assemble brand and use the assemble brand and they've got assemble papers which is you know got over twenty thousand readers Mm -hmm. in melbourne and that's a very interesting publication on you know design the environment you know the culture of living closer Mm -hmm. together and a and they'd had a lot of goodwill that they'd been able to generate through this sort of investigation they'd been doing over a number of years into sort of what housing meant and could be. Um, so we partnered with Assemble and make, um, you know, sort of kept doing you know, the investigation, talking to pension funds and the like. And we sort of then turned into this business that had really good tax structures and, you know, it was really interesting investment pathways and had a really good brand with Assemble and... Um, And we're going to do all these things. And, you know, we're sort of talking to, you know, big capital partners. You know, we're going to do this. We've got these terrific models. We're going to do all these things. And it sort of got to the point where you sort of say, we've got to get a bit of FOMO going on here. So we've got to actually just, you know, stump up by a site. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, it'll be like, goodness, these guys that we just thought were sort of talkers, you know, (laughs) all of a sudden they're into it. And we started a project and, Developed a couple of housing models that were really interesting, and um, you know, and, and the sort of interest then peaked again. So, and we kept, um, diver- you know, buying sort of more assets. So now Assemble's got a very large pipeline of projects, it's got over two and a half thousand apartment pipeline in in Melbourne, um, and we deliver housing under multiple models, but all with a lower middle income focus. So we've never lost that. So and we've got a very unique approach to the design of our apartments. So. We'll go and look at incomes in an area, and so what's an affordable rent for these lower middle incomes in these area, and then we'll back solve an apartment design to hit the income, rather than going and designing a building and say this co- is how much it costs. Yeah, and then basically saying what's yeah. our econ- what what number do we yeah. need to actually sort of justify the construction of this and building? That, now, um,
0: does that in a way sort of ensure you a bit so you know that people are going to be interested? in We know this there's price? demand. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. So we know there's a, a huge so that's that sort of missing middle. So mm. we know there's a huge housing void at those incomes. Mm. What, what is
0: that target market? I mean, that sort of grouping want in housing. So, because I, when I think about some of the things you've talked about, like mm. that desire for community, communal yeah. spaces, more engagement with developer, yeah. uh, more client centric. What, what mm. does that kind of look like in practice?
1: Uh, well, there's a few elements to it. So, the the dwellings themselves. So they, we hear a lot from a lot of our future residents that um, they feel like. Inner city housing that they could rent um, isn't designed for them, so they feel like housing is yeah. more often designed with an investor yield in mind, rather than occupant satisfaction and occupant, you know, and and the, and the sort of, um, you know, the the satisfaction and 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 sort of you know health, mental health, physical health of that occupant living in the dwelling. So and that's probably right, you know, the majority of housing stock is designed with an eye on the investor market being a core pathway to pre sales. Yep. Um, so that's one part of it. So it's sort of – it's it's resident-centric design. So um, – and with our design partner fieldwork, we've sort of gone through a really deep research thesis on what, you know, what does that mean? So what do those apartment types look like? What sort of materials do we use? You know, what's the – What's the lineage of our materials? So making sure that, you know, they're sustainably stores, mm. there's no sort of child labour content, there's no mm. so silicosis the, um, issues, there's none of these yeah. things. So and our residents respond really strongly to that. Low energy use is a big thing. So, so greenness seems to yeah, key. Is, yeah, uh, but climate, sustainability, yeah. environmental fidelity. We deal with the energy use um, is, is obviously a big one and, and that's, that's a, you know, there's a few elements to that. One's cost of energy. energy is expensive. Um, but, you know, our dwellings will perform very well on energy use and, you know, they'll be very sustainable development um, dwellings in the by the traditional measure. The thing that we really focus on is saying, well, what else do you need to do to be sort of truly sustainable? So... Um, and sort of people's mental health and the, and, the, and how sustainable the actual sort of society or neighbourhood is that you're building within these buildings is one thing that we're deeply focused on. So we do a lot of work looking at, you know, how what are the space other spaces you can provide within buildings to allow community to form in an organic way. Yep. So we provide a suite of spaces so we have multifunction communal rooms where you could have a kids' party, have a dinner party. There's overhead projectors so you could have a movie night. You could watch... You know, your favourite footy team play on a Saturday afternoon if you wanted to. Um, you'd have occasional care there for, you know, young kids in the building. So, and it just allows for these sort of casual, unforced interactions. One of the other key spaces which we're, you know, really excited about is we provide a workshop in each building. Mm-hmm. So, and that's sort of got, you can imagine, sort of multiple stainless steel benches, a bike stand, a fixture bike, and it's actually right adjacent to the lobby in each of our buildings with a big glass wall. So, the idea is that you know I might be sitting there with my bike on the bike stand, and you sort of walk home from work and head in the lobby and you see me wrestling with my bike tire and think, "Your oh, Chris doesn't really know. It like he knows what he does there." <laughs> I'll I'll pop in and you'll say, "G'day, Chris. It's it's Mike from upstairs." Here. And I'll go and chuck my bags upstairs and come and give you a hand. I'm sure you've got it covered, but you know maybe I'll just throw a few ideas at you because I'm not yeah. bad with bikes. So yeah. and it's just these sort of nice little sort of moments that the design team have that sort of talk about, you know, in a a sort of really elegant way, we can just sort of imagine that lived life. So, and you say, well, that's just a nice way for community to develop. And, you know, there's some commerce to it as well. You've got to be upfront about that. So the data from the US says that, if a household in a residential building forms two meaningful friendships with other households, then they'll stay 2.5 times longer than someone that feels isolated. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so so this sort of concept of social equity and sense of home Mm. is is really important. So there's some commercial logic to the effort put into sort of the curation, the determination to allow community to form.
0: And do you think that's uh, a stronger um, desire for the millennial kind of Gen Z market as well? It's...
1: That's, that was the hypothesis. So we thought we'd be in the sort of 20 to 40, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. sinks and dinks and, you know, and this, this sort of crew. And, and that's been true, you know, to the majority. So we've sort of seen about 60 to 70% of our people that are interested in being in one of our buildings come from that demographic. The other one, um, that we weren't inspired expecting but you know and when you sort of see it emerges so that actually does make a lot of sense it's over 60 single person households yeah yeah which is so a really, a big market actually, yeah isn't it? underserved like, market yeah we've got some terrific future residents of our first project in macaulay road kensington mm-hmm. who you know sort of see themselves sort of being the honour of the building and these yeah, sorts of things yeah. it's quite lovely so um and they're as engaged building. as anyone so and they've just you know and i think it's that sort of you know, that desire to sort of know your neighbours, you know. Some days you probably just feel like jumping in the lift and going to your apartment and watching My Kitchen Rules or whatever you want to do. Yeah. It's all good. But, but, we, but you know, what's but interesting is that you're highlighting
0: the uh, the positive side of this stuff. So mm. we, think we might have desires to do things like shut off and close away from community. But I like how you've got that emphasis on the mental health um, positives of actually connecting with community and having yeah. that kind of um, that formed space where those mm. connections can take
1: place. Yeah. Yeah, housing anxiety is, you know, a, a real thing um, and it's, it's it's a big social issue for this country to deal with, particularly in that sort of very low, low, middle income space. So we talk to a lot of people that are interested in being in an assembled building about, you know, how they feel about housing and the uncertainty of sort of rolling 12-month leasing and being exposed to mum and dad investors mm-hmm. who might have objective change or sell the property to an owner-occupier or their children might get to university age and they throw the tenant out and put the kids in there or whatever it is just the uncertainty that goes with that is we've had some really interesting conversations with people that are are in that zone and saying um you know and one woman i spoke to said her and her husband don't even talk about their housing future because it makes them too anxious to sort of think about the fact that their landlord might sort of throw them out you know in a couple of months notice sort of thing so and i sort of got that so The nice thing about um, our housing models is we're willing to commit long-term to to our residents. So if they want a a five-year lease, for example, we'll give them a five-year lease. If they want the right to buy the apartment after the conclusion of that five-year lease, we'll pre-agree a price with them to work towards and they can buy the apartment at the end of their lease. Um, And buildings that we build that are only available for it, they get certainty in a different way. So they know it's an institutional landlord, so it's owned by a superannuation fund to be... Um, purpose-built um, residential rental accommodation, and yeah. that's unlikely to change yeah. over time. So that assets... They so get some security. Now, yeah. I, I
0: mean, you've brought something very different to the market as well, which is that sort of you can rent for a period and mm. then decide at the end whether
1: you want to buy and then push that, what you've spent into that kind of final uh Yeah, the, of- s- the savings that you've made along the way, yeah. yeah so... The rent's just market rent, so we sort of deal with that, that separate. That's just the same as people would be paying around the corner. But yeah, in advance of even constructing some of our buildings, we'll enter into a an agreement where people get to rent the apartment for five years as soon as it's finished, and we'll tell them how much their rent will be for every one of those five years, and they can choose a couple of options with that. They can have flat rent, so you know, or they can have rent that starts a bit lower and goes up at a couple of percent per year. Um, you know, and it was about uh, about 30% of people chose flat rent just because that's how they're wired. Some people just mm-hmm. like to know their rent's $400 a week and it's going to be $400 a week for five years and, um, you know, and, and that's fine. And then at that same point in advance of construction, we will um, pre-agree a price for what would effectively be seven years at that point, so two years of building plus a five-year lease for them to purchase a property for at the end of that, um, that period. And that seven years was intentionally designed to say, well, if someone's only got a dollar left in the bank after they've paid their rental bond, how much time would they need to save a deposit to be able to afford to buy the property and qualify for a mortgage at the end of, you know, the period? And that was seven years. And that's a pretty commonly sort of accepted period of time to be able to save, you know, a proper deposit, you know, so we aim to get people in a sort of minimum 15% deposit. Range, um, And we do a whole bunch of stuff along the way. So we've designed a seven-module financial coaching program that people can participate in. So we talk to people about mm-hmm. how to get to know their money self. So, you know, what are the sort of – what are their spending habits? Um, some people just aren't particularly comfortable with numbers. Mm-hmm. So we give them sort of, you know, quite useful mm-hmm. tools around how to form a household budget. What does that look like? Um, If you've got seven years to save a deposit, you know, how much money do you actually need to save every week? You know, is that sort of $50 a week or $100 a week that you need to be aiming to save over mm. seven years? So – and get people into some really, um, you know, sort of good habits and get the sort of relationship with money changed a little bit. So – um, and that's is about, uh, we'll start the first module in the next couple of months, and about 90% of the residents of the first building have expressed interest in participating in that oh, that's program. Good. So it's really strong. Yeah. And some people need a bit more help than others, and they can book one on one sessions with our financial coaches. And so it's like yeah. converting the developer from
0: solely a development role to doing like community building or yeah. kind
1: of stewardship. Well, the idea, the, the thing that's most appealing is we've got alignment with our residents. So. So there's a much different lens that you look at, um, you know, developing a community through when when your resident can just hand back the keys, you know, after the first 12 months of their lease and say, you know, thanks, Chris. Um, what you sort of said you were going to deliver when we committed before you'd started building it you sort of haven't done or, you know, the neighbours, you know, sort of plays music too loud and you've got this sort of much different alignment with your residents. Yep. So when someone sort of has to either turn up and complete settlement with you once the building's finished or not, and it's pretty binary, that process. Um, You've got a much greater Mm -hmm. incentive to, you know build a good place so but you've got to really believe in it so you've got to be authentic about it and it's got to be a proper commitment well so, i was going to say so if somebody yeah.
0: wants to take advantage of the uh cheaper rates uh mm. to, to live there but doesn't buy in fully to the community yeah i can imagine that wouldn't work too well
1: well it wouldn't you know maybe that'll sort of self-sort yep. but you know we don't we definitely it's a random ballot to get allocated one of our apartments so we definitely don't try and sort of engineer a social outcome within our buildings. Yep. So, you know, lots of people sort of tried to do that in the past and done it poorly. So we say we don't try and pick someone. You don't do a Q&A style, we'll no, get 30% green, from this labour. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> That would be interesting. Um, that's got a game, yeah, TV show yeah, written all over it. Yeah, we're going to fill this with a whole bunch of sort of really diverse residents <laughs> as long as they believe in the same things as me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, with Diversity within limits. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so that's been... Um, you know, that, that, that's, that's, that's a sort of really important part of it is this sort of random diversity to it. But, you know, we don't mind. Like if people are just not engaged with community and, you know, as long as they're not being disruptive to other residents, then that's fine as well. That's all sort of part of the mix, I guess. So um, some of the other things that we do with our residents they're really interested in. So we use the power of them to get them a better deal. So we um, do a lot of work on bulk buying utilities, services. So bulk buy data, power... Dry cleaning, apartment cleaning, gym memberships. Does so we've that mean got, I've, um, getting all of them together? To, to, so we've got over five thousand people registered yep. interest in our projects now. Yeah. Um, so we can go to like Jet's gym, for example, yep. and do a bulk buying deal with them, and pass on the savings oh, to wow. the residents. Okay. So they get a better cost of living. So, so everyone's decided to go with Power Shop. So it's a lot
0: cheaper. I yeah,
1: kind of think. that's right. Yeah, so yeah, we've yeah, got. Yeah. Um, We've got an objective to try and save 20% across the board yep. in someone's sort of occupancy costs um, when they're living in an assembled building. So and what's it like um, for you? Do you
0: go out now? Are you you must be very like kind of obsessed with trying to measure the living heartbeat of these communities that you're building and, you know, going out there and talking to the buildings, not on you know, some of the residents. Yeah. And I'm sure you, uh, yeah. what are your kind of feedback and checking uh, protocols yeah. and
1: so we do, um, so we've just started building the first one. So we've got our first community of 73 apartments underway, which is really exciting. Um, and we do throughout, obviously we had a lot of engagement before building and now we've sort of got consistent community engagement. So, um, we've just started. So Saturday morning, um, or Saturday at lunchtime, i have got a demolition party with all the future residents at site. <laughs> They can all, you know, swing a sledgehammer and take a bit of brick (laughs) home with them or something of what the former building used to be, which is quite lovely. Um, so, and we do pretty consistent engagement. And obviously, we do things like the financial coaching, which allows us to engage with them. We do a bunch of survey work with them. We're constant, we're sort of careful to not sort of overwhelm them. Um, but because there's so much you can try and understand how they're feeling about whether Assemble's being a good partner for them, yeah. um, whether we're feeling that fulfilling their needs at this stage, and then post-occupancy will be, um, you know, a sort of much bigger exercise again. So we'll get much more direct feedback. And one of the ways that we're sort of – we think it's quite interesting that we're intending to um, see how people are feeling about our buildings is to run owners' corporation-type meetings during the rental phase. Mm-hmm, so every six mm-hmm. months – all the residents in the building can. We'll go out to the building and we'll all sit in a sort of one of the common areas, and they can have a chat to us about how the building's running, whether they think Assemble's doing a good job, you know, whether the lobby should be cleaned once a day or every two days. So, yep. and get this sort of sense of um, ownership, sort of and, ownership yeah. and sort of self-curation of the buildings, and um, we think that's that's a really important thing, and that'll be a, be a nice way for us to sort of sort of talk in a respectful way with the residents so and the way that we deliver service is you know much more bespoke to our brand as well so we won't have a concierge desk and you know sort of someone with a hat and tie on sitting behind that in, in an assembled building so we will run the food and beverage service and the barista that's you know making your latte in the morning is also trained in our backbone system so you know if you need to Get your sort of a washer changed in your tap. That's yeah. part of it. There's going to be baristas in the building. Yeah, that's oh my right. God, where do I sign up? That's right. This is I, this is good. You're ticking that's all the boxes what, That's uh, that was. That was the number one thing for 90 percent of our future residents. Yeah. But, um, so you can tell that you can tell that barista, and they can they can log in and say they need to get a washer fixed on. Uh, Mike's apartment, and and we'll get all going there. will the
0: uh, barista remember everyone's name and coffee preference. If there's a lot of people,
1: Oh uh, we've got lists and photos, okay, so we're good. <laughs> okay. Well, you got that one Surely. worked out. Yeah, <laughs> um,
0: asking all the big questions. Yeah, no
1: guarantees though.
0: When you're doing so. this work, I mean, this is a very innovative type of concept that you're deploying here. Are you kind of thinking, like for example, what you said about the meetings every six months? Do you look at the research from overseas or locally as to you know what is the best way to consult, or do you? you d- is like just sort of by feel or
1: yeah it is Uh, it's it's not by feel well you know some of it is and some of it's by by asking you know the people that are going to be living in these buildings how they want to engage with us so that's probably the most important test but there's better examples um, probably through parts of uh, mainland Europe um, in some of those countries that I mentioned so the sort of housing cooperative model um, that we've been researching in cities like Zurich and Amsterdam and the way that those communities self-curate is something that we're really interested in in yep. saying, you know, I'm not sort of convinced that people necessarily sort of just want someone, you know, a sort of community manager that works for the building owner there just doing a whole bunch of stuff for them the whole time. I think sort of people are happy to sort of to have a sort of level of self sufficiency and self governance over the way their community and neighbourhood works. So
0: I think if you had that person there, mm, people might uh, not take as much responsibility for the space yeah, and
1: ownership. That's right. Yeah. So we do, we want to create a sort of sense of ownership um, in these buildings, um, which we think is sort of important to the sort of quality of life that our residents will have there. So we. Um, so we do a lot of work on that. And I think those how the sort of co-ops, the sort of the European co-op models, much stronger model than some of the US model, which is a much more sort of service-based model where, you know, there's someone behind the desk who will get your dry cleaning done for you and yeah, put yeah, it back yeah. in your closet upstairs and and things, which is, which is fine. And we've taken lessons from both, to be honest. You know, there's elements of the US service model that we think relevant to what we're doing. And then there's other parts of encouraging sort of self-management of a community by the community. Um, that we think are really interesting as well but it'll it'll sort of you know it'll develop over time so we've got a whole bunch of other ideas but it's sort of saying we just want to start with our sort of our sort of alpha version well Um, tell us about the development it's 15
0: thompson street coming up
1: yeah that's the new one so that's uh so the pilot project was in Macaulay road in kensington we really love kensington it's a bit of a hidden gem actually i think that was the way that Kino described it. It's not that hidden uh, anymore, surely. No, it's not really. It's, on the, yeah, it's on the map now. So, well, I quite liked Kino's um, description of it. So he said self-proclaimed Brunswick snob. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he thought... <laughs> Sort of where's Kensington? Sort of nowhere's closer to the city than Brunswick in Melbourne, and you know and all that, these sort of lovely attributes that yeah. he enjoyed about Brunswick. And then he he sort of got Google Maps out and worked out. Well, Kensington's actually got a couple of train stations about three k's from CBD. It's got a beautiful village, and it's got some it's nice and green. some really lovely stuff happening. Yeah, so we we did our pilot there on Macaulay Road, which is under construction now and fully committed. Um, and then we um just about to launch our new project at 15 Thompson Street, which is just around the corner. So we've sort of fallen in love with Kensington. We think there's, um, you know, the sort of nature and the sort of behavior and feel of the community there. And the village is something that we're really interested in, in being a part of. Um, and they're a very engaged community as well, which we think sort of suits our brand. and um, Demographic match as well? So you sort of look at who's living in that area and yeah, we, a good fit? Yeah, we do. Like Kensington's, um, you know, not – I wouldn't describe that as a particularly affordable suburb as is. Yep. So our housing will sort of add to the sort of diversity and the sort of, you know, the affordability of that as a location. But we look at sort of what's happening in the area. So you've got within sort of – you know relative sort of relatively relatively proximate to the site, you've got you know the major universities, you've got the health precincts, so you've got a whole bunch of these workers that we're interested in accommodating in our buildings um, that are within that would be working relatively in relative close proximity to the site. Um, so that's the sort of things that we look at, and we do look at sort of median area incomes and the like, and say, well, you know, what sort of housing choice do those people have outside the single-fronted terrace house type accommodation? So, yeah. So and- this is this is
0: incredibly exciting. I mean, mm. what is the vision for this? I mean, it, it seems like it's working quite well. Yeah, you've got the new site. Could this be a, a new way that we do housing in Melbourne and really kind of on a mass scale? Or mm. what's your vision?
1: Yeah, look, I think the vision for the business, so for Assemble now, is um, you know, as a as a housing business, um, you know, and as a, as a community manager, is to build housing under primarily three models. So we think we'll do, um, we'll turn a site, start four to five hundred dwellings a year under the model where we give people the five year lease, and they've got the right to buy the property at the end of that lease if they choose to. You know, if they choose not to, fine, they're not they're not worse off as a result of making that choice. Um, they can move out and get their bond back and then that's all good. The second model is, um, housing that we build, um, as assemble communities and curate those communities in the same way, um, have the same sort of design qualities in our buildings that are just available for rent long term. And that's more akin to, say, the North American model where we would own the buildings for, you know, decades and decades. Um, and that would be done on land that we own. Um, and then one of the most sort of interesting opportunities that we're seeing emerging and it's allowed us to move further into very low-income housing, so social housing is partnerships with government on government land where we take long-term ground leases and build housing-like infrastructure. So it's like a sort of boot scheme, which is um, we build it, we own it, we operate it, and then we transfer it back to gov- government at the Yeah. So we build it, own it, operate it, and then give it back to government at the end of the lease period. And that's like a 50 year, 50 year deal. And that's a really interesting opportunity for government, faith based groups, universities, and other organizations that aren't necessarily interested in selling their real estate Mm -hmm. to execute housing, um, execute housing outcomes in partnership with businesses like Assemble. And that's, that is really exciting. Yeah. So we're participating in a bid process with government at the moment for the development of.
0: And is that Almost for social th-
1: housing? Yeah, it's about two thousand dwellings in total. Wow. About one third social housing, and the balance of it, low and middle income housing. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. still in the spectrum there. So, but a pretty diverse community because yeah. we,
0: we've we've got some interesting challenges in Melbourne. I think around um, both housing affordability, but also, you know, you're you're clearly addressing that market of people who are in between the the middle, the the middling kind of group. Mm. But but those who can't afford housing at all and who are really in need, the homeless, etc. Mm, yeah. So this is a space that Assemble
1: can also be in or be yeah. a player in. So we can partner with groups like government. So we won't manage very low-income housing. Yep. So we've partnered with groups like Housing Choices Australia, Mission Australia Housing, so who have got a bespoke service offer to those very low-income households that have often got very high needs, so different needs to, say, more market housing. Um, and you know, that's, I think they're an important part of the equation. So that not for profit housing sector and the way in which they deliver service to those households is is quite unique and they do a really terrific job. Um, so we think that's a really big vein of opportunity. So there's 63,000 households on the waiting list for social housing Mm. dwelling in Victoria at the moment. So that's a systemic problem. That has real impact on Victoria as a as a sort of place of production, as a productive economy, you know, as a good place to live for you know, it has a real impact on a whole bunch of things across the, the board, you know, meant not to not the least of which is sort of the mental health effect on those people, their sort of nervousness around being able to have sort of house themselves and and their families. So, so it's it, a, big, I mean, a lot of heavy lifting that needs to be done there. Yeah. Um, I'm and, curious
0: from your perspective, you know, um, as somebody who sees the whole sector and is a real partnership player in the mm. sector now, who's going to be the primary driver of change? Or is it going to be a partnership model that helps to address the, the sort of the amount, getting the optimal amount of social housing yeah. you know, in a
1: timely way? It needs to be a partnership. So in the past, government's done the majority of the heavy lifting itself. Mm-hmm. Um, given the scale of the need now and the need for. Good quality, well-designed, occupant-centric housing—you know—in the very low-income space, um, government needs to partner with industry to deliver that, um, and government needs to find mechanisms to incentivise superannuation funds to invest in housing and treat that as infrastructure. So, um, and in the United States, for example, I spoke about the sort of bul- the explosion in institutional investment into housing assets. One of the big. Um, things the federal government in the United States did was introduce a tax credit system to incentivise pension funds to invest in very low income housing, and it delivers 130,000 dwellings a year at the moment in North America that wouldn't be delivered otherwise. Mm. All income tested, all very low income housing. So, so there's a tax there's credit some, for doing that. Yeah, so there's a, you know there's some interesting sort of you know like a investment ecosystem that mm. the US has been very good at creating and. you know know, allowing institutions to deploy large volumes of capital into that sector Um, and the federal government and the state governments in Australia are doing a very good job and a very good exercise in sort of trying to investigate what the opportunities Mm. are for them to you know produce a similar investment environment that will allow our superannuation investors to um, invest in housing in a similar way so um, and the good thing is it's definitely seen now as a, a sort of space that's got, um, you know, benefit in politics. So, you know, it's something people are interested in. And yep. It's relevant to a very large tranche of Australians. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that are nervous about housing. There's a lot of parents that are nervous about their kids' housing future. Yep. So, it's a, definitely a national issue. Um, and, you know, the federal, the new federal government's making some positive moves already in housing. So, you know, I think it's really now, you know, only a matter of time where you know they start to you know, introduce some revised policy settings that really get the big capital that exists, sort of sitting on the sidelines yeah. in Australia, into the market and you know allow it to do some of the heavy lifting on government's behalf. So, and they're very interested in it, like the the large, particularly the member based superannuation funds. So, and you know, a lot of their members are the janitors, you know, and the sort of factory workers and the sort of whole bunch of the sort of middle Australia. Um, they're very interested in, you know, the sort of way that they can invest to, for the benefit of their members, not Absolutely. just if their super save, you know, their superannuation position, yeah. but also to deal with more immediate issues that they. Well, it's good
0: alignment to, I think, what their members are interested in already. Mm. So it's kind of the perfect um, pipeline.
1: Yeah. Changing
0: tax slightly, I want to ask you a bit about um, your day to day. I mean, obviously, um, doing a role like uh, yours across Make and Assemble would keep you extremely busy. How do you sort of manage yourself and ensure that you're able to optimize and be your best self every
1: day? Yeah, it is busy. Um, There's a lot of, you know, I've got quite a full diary, so, um, you know, and there's been quite a bit of travel. I've been overseas a couple of times already this year and a couple of times last year, so there's quite a few demands there and I've got, you know, a young family, I've got two young children um, and, you know, lovely wife, so... There's, you know, you're sort of getting pulled in all sorts of directions. So um, one thing that I find sort of quite useful to sort of moderate myself is sort of exercise. So a little bit of swimming and a bit of cycling and some of these other things very early in the morning. And one of the key strategies I've sort of been deploying more recently, probably this year, is to get into the office extremely early. Oh, yeah. Great strategy. You know, and I can sort of get two hours of concentrated work because... To be honest with you, my diary at the moment, you know, I don't actually get the opportunity to produce anything, and that's an issue. You know, I sort of go to a lot of meetings and make contribution in that way, but sometimes you just sort of need to sit down and do some concentrated work. Absolutely. So that's been a a good way for me to do that. And also, I was sort of, wasn't sort of nervousness about it, but the way the organisation's changing, which has been, and it's really sort of multiplied, I think there's 22 staff or something in Assemble now, Is the employment of really highly skilled senior resources in, you know, their sort of specific business lines has taken so much stress out of my life and I've got so much trust in a number of people within the Mm organisation now to just sort of get on with it, be the right brand representatives that we need them to be and just do a really terrific job. You know, probably a better job than they'd do if I was interfering half the time, to be honest. So um, has been a, a sort of a real, a real relief, and that's um, we've been able to get to the scale sort of during the course of this year where we can sort of make some of those key appointments, and um, that's been really terrific for, for everyone, I think. So,
0: And how do you like to uh, unwind when you get the chance and learn? Are you a reader, podcast listener, movie watcher?
1: Uh, I walk quite a lot, so we've got an active golden retriever. So one of the things I do do is get up extremely early and often take her for a walk along the beach um, and listen to a few podcasts. So um, and I read a bit. So I'm not a particularly sort of active reader. Um, I do a lot of time researching what we do for work so i do a lot of reading around um and, housing you, and, and housing obviously issues it's and hard
0: because you, you do what you love and then yeah. you read about what you love as well
1: well i'm very fortunate um i've got a lot of friends that uh, chose careers and are probably not that sort of enamored with what they do for work I have got a lot of energy every morning to get out of work – out of bed, sorry, go to work. um, And I've got to sort of moderate that and make sure I'm making the proper contribution at home and with other commitments, um, you know, and making sure I'm sort of engaged there as well. But I'm very fortunate that I really enjoy work. So to be doing some reading and research about work out of hours is not something that sort of – is a a pain for me, so – I think that's that's pretty lucky. Well, if you're loving your home life and your work life, it's mm. a pretty good all round setup. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I'm very lucky. <laughs> so, no, it's good. It's interesting work, you know, and it's sort of – it's good to have purpose. So, um, you know, it's good to, you know, have an organization now in Assemble that's, um, you know, that I'm very proud to talk about. You know, it's got a soul to it. You know, it's got a proper heartbeat. Um got a lot of really clever, you know, young people in the business that are really engaged with the purpose of the business. Mm. Um, So we attract a lot of talent to a business like Assemble that we wouldn't otherwise get if we were just doing our sort of conventional off-the-plan development. So um, that's a really good thing. And then talking to future residents of our building that are, you know, and they're terrific Mm. and they're engaged and they're very interested in it. And, um, you know, and you can sort of see... You know, over time, how you can have a real impact on on people's lives. So that's a that's a beautiful way to leave it
0: as a parting thought. Actually, uh, tell our lovely listeners how they can connect with you and learn more about both assemble, assemble and make uh, online if they wish to. Sure.
1: Um, well, everyone's always welcome at the office. So we have a look on the website. We're in Swan Street, Richmond. So we've had a few people sort of pop in for a chat and great coffee. Got a lot of chatty chatty people in the office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you've been there and enjoyed a. Enjoyed a cup of coffee, so we do make good coffee. Um, Or, you know, people can hop on the website, assemblecommunities.com, and there's a lot of information on there. There's a lot of information about the new project, but, um, yeah, so and just hear a bit more about what we're doing or give us a call or and We're always um, keen to chat. With Thompson
0: Street, the new development, can Mm. people express interest? Is that open? Yeah,
1: so we've had, you know, strong interests already, so people can register for updates and sort of get on a – a group there that, you know, ultimately will um, offer the opportunity for those people to participate in design presentations and hear more about the project and then, you know, ultimately they'll be able to nominate for a ballot to hopefully get a spot in the building. So know, exciting. You know. I like
0: that. The, the nomination and the ballot just adds a whole new element to uh, moving yeah, in somewhere new.
1: That's right.
0: So <laughs> it's pretty exciting. So Awesome. Well, thank you so much for dropping in. It's been great chatting. Thanks. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that,
1: just head to humansofpurpose.com.